industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Today, we're taking a look at two kinds of stocks. Stocks that have been beaten down and stocks that have just absolutely ripped. Molly Fool contributor Jason Hall joins the show today, where we're going to take a look at Exxon's troubles and whether it can recover. And we'll hit the listener mailbag to discuss some high flyers folks just can't stop asking us about. Jason, great to have you back on the podcast as always. It's it's good to be on. I'm, I'm really having trouble not laughing because of a comment you made before we started the show. Thundercats, go. That needs to be on the podcast, so I needed to say it out loud. I feel better now. Well, well there you go. Yeah, so it's on the show. Yeah, so that's just like from, from Juno, right? Whenever she goes into labor, she says Thundercats are go. That's where I, where I got that from. So I love that movie. Um, yeah, so this is our first show back uh, from Thanksgiving. You do anything super exciting for the holiday? You know, it's with with COVID and everything, and I'm, you know, I'm stranded out here on the West Coast, all of our families back in the South. We really didn't, except for one little thing. We, we have a little pod. We've got some friends that our kids are in the same daycare. So we have like this exact same COVID risk profile. And they're also from the South, big Georgia fans. So we hung out together. That was kind of nice because we never see them during the holidays because like us, they're all traveling. So it was kind of nice, right? We made a little bit of lemonade out of out of the lemons. So it was good. It was good. How about you? Yeah, same thing for us. We kind of stuck around. Uh, we're up in Virginia, most of my family back home um, in Alabama. Probably going to try to get down there uh, safely for Christmas, but just kind of stuck around. You know, uh, made some sides, picked up a honey baked ham, all those sorts of things. Uh, just oh, great to have man. some time off of work. And, you know, I- I'm one of these people that's picked my video game habit back up during the pandemic. So I played way too much of the new uh, new Call of Duty. So uh, so there you go. <laughs> so uh, so now we're back on to stocks. So we get to, we get to, uh, we get to go uh, into stocks, Jason. So um, we're going to lead off, as I said off the top of the show, we're going to talk about some stocks that have been beaten down. Uh, well, one particular stock that's been beaten down, and we'll talk about a few that, that folks are asking us about a lot that have just been ripping this year. Uh, so before we get into Exxon, when you think about shopping for companies that have just been beaten down or trading near their 52-week lows, how do you think about uh, uh, those companies as potential investments? So there's a couple ways you have to look at it, right? I think the easy thing to do is to anchor on where the price was before COVID and immediately assign, hey, this it's going to go back, right? I think it's really it's really easy to do that. And in some cases, I think I think that that is true, but the issue is thinking about it from a business perspective, right? And you think about what is a what is a good business that's experiencing temporary problems that's going to emerge in good shape versus what's a business that's was struggling before this happened, and really 2020 has been more of a catalyst to expose the problems with that business, and it's going to emerge likely weaker, right? So that's one thing I'm really, really thinking a lot about when I'm looking for bargains right now, because there are some. But there's also just some not great businesses that don't have great futures that it's really easy to anchor on 2019 and say, well, the stock has to go back up. Absolutely. I think one of the things I think about a lot with things that have happened this year with the pandemic is what trend got pulled forward. There's some trends that are really great that have gotten pulled forward, like remote work and things like that, that have really brought Zoom ripping. And then there's other trends, like we might talk with Exxon here today, uh, that have been pulled forward uh, that, that have, have really created some trouble for, for a business. In the case of Exxon, this week on Monday, Exxon announced its intention to write down some of its natural gas investments by 17 to $20 billion, its largest ever Right down, and this is something we've been talking about for a long time when it comes to some of these shale assets not producing uh, earnings, and, and now we've really seen that come to a head this year with significant amounts of write-downs, Exxon being the latest of those. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, the the bottom line is that the the thing that kind of underpins what's going on with ExxonMobil, this specifically, to me, it's kind of like a symptom of something that I think a lot of people haven't really followed with the company that's been going on for a while. But this goes back to, I don't know, more than a decade ago, when ExxonMobil made what really, in hindsight, bias a little bit, but also at the time, there was this idea that when it bought XTO Energy, it paid like $40 billion for, for at the time, it was the largest natural gas producer in North America. And this just wiped out half. This is going to wipe out, you know, basically half of that. And to me, I think this is, but I think it, there's some, there's a bit of it that's kind of smart that ExxonMobil is saying, okay, this is the hardest place for us to really predict being able to generate positive cash flow out of these operations. And it's another step towards really doubling down on a lot of their oil business and kind of focusing on really leveraging their integration. So I think that's what they're doing. But it's just it just points to a, a history of of things that haven't worked right for for ExxonMobil, right? So they, yeah, that XTO deal just to put some numbers on it that was in late two thousand nine, a forty one billion dollar deal, right at really the peak of kind of the natural gas hype. You think about in two thousand nine, that's when Chesapeake Energy uh, was kind of really at its peak and dominating a lot a lot of headlines. Obviously, that company just went bankrupt this year. So. Uh, Really, really tough. And you look at the natural gas market, right? A natural gas prices peaked back in 2005 at $15 per BTU. Now they're at $3. Just really been tough with all this this shale production um, that's come online. So, in conjunction uh, with that. Um, with that uh, announcement of the write down, Exxon has talked about their their work trying to get uh, their expenses under control. They're going to reduce uh, their global workforce by 15%. They're reducing uh, their capital expenditures. Earlier this year, they had a projection of 30 to $35 billion a year in CapEx through 2025. Now they've bumped that down to $19 billion or less in 2021 and 20 to $25 billion a year. Through 2025, just trying to get their their expenses underway. You look at the stock uh, shares down 42% year to date this year. You look at the yield at 9%. A lot of folks might say, "Hey, you know, 9% yield, get paid to wait with this with this energy giant um, in Exxon." Thoughts there on on that thesis of of Hey, well, you know, the business is turning around. It's getting its expenses under control. But, well, maybe I can buy this dividend and, and wait and get paid uh, until things turn around. I mean, we we do know that that management is prioritizing trying to keep that dividend afloat, right? There's no doubt about that. But you know, something you and I were were talking about as we were prepping for the show, and I kind of sort of intellectually knew it, but I'd never really looked super closely at it. But here's the bottom line: if you look at if you look at ExxonMobil and you go back all the way to to twenty, I don't know, let's see, twenty sixteen. 2015, somewhere around there, ExxonMobil has paid out more in cash, has paid out more in dividends than it's gen- than it has generated in free cash flow, right? So its cash, its cash dividend payout ratio has been above 100% for essentially five years, right? So as, as much as we can look at, at 2020 and say, well, oil price crash, the demand crash, of course, they're going to be paying out a lot of cash and dividends this year. That they're not going to be earning. I mean, you you go back and oil, oil prices were. I I don't know. Let's see. Let's just just for giggles. Let's go back and take a look. So oil prices were consistently in the. I don't know in the in the sixties. You go back, yeah, sixty seventy dollars a barrel. And they were still spending more cash 
<laughs> to, to support that dividend than they were bringing in from their operations, right? So that means a lot of the debt that they've added over the past five years has partially been to support that dividend. So this isn't a 2020 story on using debt to fund that dividend. This is a five-year story. That's something investors really need to consider. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things, like I said earlier, kind of pulling forward this trend we, we've seen for a long time when it comes to the, the oil prices Exxon needs to, to be break-even on its dividends and, and maintain its capital expenditure in order to, to maintain its production. All those sorts of things, uh, they've needed to tap into the debt markets to, to support their dividend, and that's going you know, to continue here. What do you think are the chances that they cut their dividend? Um, it's certainly greater than zero. You know, I think I think there's, I don't know. I think if you were to corner one of their executives and and you know at gunpoint them, make them tell you exactly what they thought, I think they would say that they're very uncertain. I really think they would they would have to have to admit that it could have to get cut in 2021 because here's the reality: the debt market has largely been pretty forgiving for ExxonMobil because it is one of the industry heavyweights. It has massive assets. It does have a lot of really good low-cost oil assets. It does have a business that, as it gets more integrated, should be able to generate more profits right across the entire value chain. And that's important, right? Because this isn't just the cost of oil, the cost of, ga- of, of natural gas driving its results. It has a really good integrated business, and the more it can tighten that integration, it can start leveraging its refining, its petrochemicals business, which is something it's focusing on. So the debt market has been forgiving. But at some point, a banker is going to step back and say, guys, you can't keep paying this big dividend. I mean, this has happened to Kinder Morgan a few years ago, right? Kinder Morgan kept spending this money and kept spending this money while to, to build its operations and also kept paying this big, big dividend and eventually got to the point where... The debt market said something has to change because your balance sheet is not working and you have to think about how you're allocating capital to who. And, and I think that that sort of a reckoning could could come back around Dexon Mobile because the bottom line is they still have to spend that $20 billion a year to build out you know, their, their EMP business. They have to do that, right? They, they're going to have to do that. There was, it, I think, Angola, is that the... Where is it? No, it's a Guyana, right? Guyana, there's where their big offshore play is. They've, they've targeted the Permian. They say the Permian's still where they want to spend money to develop those oil assets. It's going to cost a ton of money to continue to do that. As much as they've cut their projected CapEx spend, they're still going to be spending a ton of CapEx. And if we do see a protracted, I think, here's what I think. I think, I don't want to ramble too much here, but I think we're going to see oil markets remain very, very volatile, right? No matter what happens going forward, I think it's going to the, the, the peaks and valleys are going to be super sharp. And, and I think that that's going to make it a challenge for them to continue to support this kind of a payout if they can't show cash flow growth. That's, and that's where we are. Yeah, I think I think the, the the tell there on the dividend is if you look closely at the language when they put out this this um this write down is the language changed from we have a, a reliable and growing dividend to we have a reliable dividend, which which tells you all you need to know about management's confidence in their ability to increase it over time and you know in their ability to to maintain the payout um that they have. I, I do think one thing that we should always note with oil stocks is we're seeing across the board Exxon, lots of other companies cut their capex, uh, which is going to impact production here sooner or later. So. 
you know, there's this whole idea that an oil market's low prices cure low prices. So maybe oil oil you know starts snapping back as we see underinvestment in, in, in production, and that helps Exxon on the cash flow side. But I would say you look back, you know, this year the stock has been beaten down because of COVID. But even if you look back over this past 10 years or so, uh, you know, as the shale market has grown out, this is a business that. From from a fundamental point of view, has had more and more struggles, and has really been having to tap into debt markets in order to to maintain its dividend and, and those sorts of things. So, uh, this is not one that I would be betting on uh, for a bounce back today uh, in that uh, in that space. Yeah, it's kind of it just there's there's too much uncertainty, and I think another thing I think a lot of people are doing when they're looking at at, at at the oil markets and they're looking at at these big fully integrated producers as maybe places of safety or places of 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 exceedingly good value is i think they're expecting history to repeat itself when it comes to saudi arabia when it comes to russia when it comes to some of the other opec partners and what they're going to do yes they've acted as huge stabilizing forces this year to try to prop up the market and they've done that for really three or four years now, five years almost. I don't expect that's going to be the case going forward. I really, really don't. You have to go back to late February, really all through February, Saudi Arabia launched a full-scale market war. It just so happened that the timing was pretty bad because then COVID happened and global oil demand fell 30%. But at one point, Saudi Arabia had pushed its 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 oil exports up like 30%, right? I mean, it was just enormous. The amount of oil capacity that they were pouring into the market to take market share was absolutely enormous. I don't expect that these oil, these these oil national, these oil nations, the petrostates are going to step back and let the Permian take the market share that it took. They're going to let the Bakken take the market share that it took. That shale surge that drove the US to the largest production in the world, I don't think that's going to happen Again, I think they're going to fight much harder for market share, and I think that's a concern for the Exxon Mobiles of the world that are saying we're focusing on on the Permian. Right when the low cost leader is not, is going to, you can you know it's single single digit oil that production costs for 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 a lot of these OPEC countries. They're the low cost leader, right? They're and 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 they, they're. I think there's a bigger threat there than a lot of people maybe necessarily are factoring in. Yeah, it's a fair point, and I, I think there's an OPEC meeting actually going on this week, so we may have news about that, that that's relevant um, to what's going on there. So, so when it comes to you know when you're looking at a lot of these oil stocks, whether it's Exxon, super integrated company, or, or especially some of these independents, I don't think it's it's an area where where we would go bottom fishing uh, um, right now. Moving on, kind of away from oil stocks, clearly this is an area uh, that's that's out of favor. But if you go on the other side of the coin, companies that touch the renewable energy space are drawing incredible amounts of attention and hype this year. Uh, these stocks have been on incredible runs. And so we've gotten a bunch of questions from folks about some of these high-flying stocks that, that we'll talk about uh, here in a second. Before we tackle some of those, Jason, if you see a stock like that that's just gone on a crazy run over the last year or so, how does that affect your interest in investing in the stock? Do you like to look at the 52-week high list for, for stocks to check out? I do, because I've I've learned from um, David Gardner, right? Um, one of he Winners win, right? I think, I think if you could kind of sum up his investing philosophy in two words. It's it's winners win. But then you have to apply context to that, right? A winner isn't just a stock that's gone up a hundred percent or two or three or in some of these cases like a thousand percent this year. There has to be the context of a wonderful business that underlies it. 
that is also executing incredibly well, right? The business is growing. It's disrupting somebody. It's taking share. It's establishing new markets. Uh, it has wonderful management that has skin in the game and, and all of those other attributes that make it a rule breaker. And also the stock has gone up, right? So, um, so that's what a winner looks like. Um, a winner isn't uh, just an alternative fuels idea stock um, or, a, a, I don't know, f plug power, fuel, fuel cell energy, right? It's a, it's, it's a stock that's gone up, like, you know, it has a comma in the percentage that it's gone up over the past year. But then you go back to when the company went public and it's still down, right? It's, it's, that's, that's a very different thing entirely, right? And that's where you have to be an investor versus trading on momentum and just following squiggly lines on a screen. Yeah, so, so so the way I, I would say is, and, and I would agree with, with with David Gardner, and you know this idea that it's probably you're going to find a, a better outcomes over time by by shopping on the 52 week high list than shopping on the 52 week low list. Part of that's is because winners win, but that should just give you the list of stocks to maybe take a poke around at. Then you have to poke around at the underlying business um, and see how it performs. Just like we talked about earlier, just because Exxon is down, you know, whatever 40 plus percent this year doesn't mean it's going to magically snap snap back to where it was today. We want to look at the underlying performance of the business um, and how it's doing. So, so as we talk about that, one of these areas that we've seen just a massive amount of interest in this year, where the stocks have been on an incredible run, uh, is this, this fuel cell space. Companies like Plug Power, Ballard Power, and Bloom Energy. Jason, when you take a look at, at, at this space, what stands out to you? What should investors uh, be paying attention to? Are they on that list of wonderful businesses to buy at 52-week highs? Um, I, th I think in general, not, not exactly, right? Because you know, here, here's the bottom line. And, and so first of all, I think this is important. The economics of hydrogen are starting to shift, right? Because the biggest problem with hydrogen has been making hydrogen in a cost-effective manner, right? There's, there's lots of great technology to do it, but there's also the dirty little secret that most of it is steam formed from hydrocarbons, right? So clean hy hydrogen isn't really clean right now, you know, like well over 90% of it comes from um, from this steam forming process of hydrocarbons, mainly natural gas. But the economics are shifting because wind and solar costs are falling enough that you can use the electricity from that to, I guess, with electrolysis to produce hydrogen. So that's starting to change the game. But for the most part, I think the industry is still littered with these idea stocks that aren't necessarily there yet. The, the stocks, I think, have gotten grossly far ahead of the business. And I mentioned fuel cell energy before. I'm going to mention fuel cell again, right? The stock since the beginning of the year, as of today, December 3rd, is up 1,220% over the past 12 months. This year, it's up about 200%, right? But if you go back to when the company went public back in the 90s, the stock is down 96%, right? This is not a company that has been a big winner that has continued to win. This is a company whose management, and there's a lot of the companies in this space that are the same, so I'm not, I'm not indicting fuel cells management specifically. But in general, these, these companies in this industry have been really good at one thing, and that's getting investors to kick in more capital that they've burned through trying to build a business before they go back to capital markets and ask investors again for more capital that they can burn through, rinse, and repeat. The industry has never gotten to scale, right? And I think a lot of these companies are, are still riding on the story and not necessarily a meaningfully valuable business. Maybe that's starting to change for some of them. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Jason. You're looking at, at most of these companies' um, losses since inception. Uh, so, so I would, wouldn't put these these companies in the category of these are businesses that have, that have been super incredible winners over a history of time. Um, again, I think fuel cells have an application, um, but when you look at the underlying economics, this isn't something that gets me super excited uh, to invest in. I, and I think you know you can look at the chart. It's one simple thing to do. Um, if the chart just like looks like somebody flipping you off, kind of, where it's just like one big huge <laughs> spike and then it goes flat. Generally, now there are exceptions, but generally, that's not going to be uh, um, a good investment. So, so uh, just just keep that in mind. I want to drill into the actual economics of the business and and how it's performed historically, rather than just look over the past twelve months or so. Yeah, and I do want to call out Bloom Energy. Um, this is this is one that I've invested in. So Bloom Energy, the ticker is BE. Um, the shares are up about two hundred twenty five percent this year. So it's it's one of those that's gone up, but it's been a, it has been a little bit of a winner. This is a more recently public company. Its revenues are substantially larger than than any of its its peers in the space. Um, but I think it's one that that is positioned to be a big winner from the shift of economics. I think they're focused where where the future for hydrogen is probably going to be the strongest, and that's in utility scale and uh, you, you, utility scale power generation and uh, heavy-duty transportation applications. So wind and solar are great, but they're not reliable. They're not predictable, right? They, 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 we can't just turn up the wind when, when uh, we hit peak demand. We can't just make the sun shine brighter when we have peak demand. So electricity, so energy storage technologies are important. Battery costs are falling, uh, but there's a lot of challenges there in terms of access to the to the materials uh, to meet the kind of global demand for storage we're talking about. I think I think hydrogen is going to be a great place for storage because the energy density is good, and you have the ability to leverage wind and solar to store energy in the form of of hydrogen, right? And then you can use that hydrogen to, to produce electricity. As needed, I think it's also hydrogen could be a big winner, like in maritime transportation, so like container ships, where you have really this massive industrial type of power output that you need, and a big container ship, just like a, a class eight heavy duty tractor trailer, you can't just stick tons and tons of batteries, literally tons of batteries, because you need that space for whatever the good is that you're trying to transport. So you have a lot better energy density with hydrogen. I think it can win in those spaces, and Bloom's really, really well positioned in that utility scale phase. They've got some really, really big deals in Korea specifically. There's a lot of shipbuilding that happens in Korea. Uh, Korea's really focused on uh, energy security. You think about where the Korean Peninsula is; uh, they don't necessarily have the most friendly neighbors around them. Uh, so having access to to energy uh, is really important. And I think that's the kind of thing where Bloom Energy's Bloom Energy is really positioned to win. It also it's gone up two hundred percent. Trades for four times sales. Fuel cell energy plug power trade for twenty four times sales. Ballard Power trades for forty times sales. Right. So it's a, its business is growing. It's generating higher revenue. Talking about Bloom, it also trades for a much more reasonable valuation even though even with the stock having been a winner right so to a certain extent the market is rewarding it more appropriately based on how its business has performed good deal yeah one other uh stock i wanted to talk about briefly we've gotten a ton of questions about it it is blink charging ticker blnk this is another one that has performed incredibly well this year up over 1100 uh percent uh in 2020 
It's another one though where you need to drill into uh, into the into the actual financials of the company. So it's playing this really hot trend. Electric vehicles, electric vehicle charging, that whole space has has really been hot this year. But if you actually drive into the business, uh, it's been public for over a decade. Pot has never generated positive net income or positive operating cash. Uh, just reached its highest stock price since 2017. Uh, why is 2017 an interesting date uh, for it to reach its highest stock price then? Well, they did a 50 for one stock split, a uh, reverse stock split in August uh, of 2017. Generally not something um, you want to see historically. You look at trading multiples 56, th 56 times next year's revenue per S&P capital IQ. If you want to do a different valuation metric, look at valuation per charger. So, so Blink Charging is an electric vehicle charging company, offers uh, uh, services where, where different retail stores can buy uh, um, chargers and use them on their premises, or they have kind of a, a charger as a service model where, where uh, uh, the retail store will pay them a percentage. They get back um, exclusive rights to charge at some of these locations, which, which helps them. But again, if you look at if you look at the valuation here, so at the end of the third quarter, Blink had deployed fifteen thousand seven hundred and sixteen charging stations. If you take a look at Blink's market cap today, seven hundred something million dollars, that values Blink at forty seven thousand two hundred thirteen dollars per charging station. Just for context, uh, most of the things that are going to be plugging up uh, to these charging stations are going to be electric vehicles. You would think you can get a new Tesla Model Three for thirty seven thousand nine hundred and ninety dollars, so for less than what one of these charging stations is getting valued uh, by for the market. Um, if you look at uh, at the year to date 2020, 3.4 million dollars in revenue on 9.3 million dollars in SG&A, so really not producing uh, um, profits. And then lastly, you look at uh, a lot of times we as, as folks of the Motley Fool like to see a CEO uh, with a large ownership stake. We do see that in this case with CEO Michael Farkas. Um, however, I, I was looking through their their um, their proxy statement. Uh, this, this form 14. A, that you can get uh, from from the SEC that tells you how management is compensated and that sort of thing. You see lots and lots of, of related transactions between the CEO, Mr. Farkas, the Blink Charging, and uh, and his uh, consulting organization. Uh, if you look at, at his compensation, uh, he gets other compensation as a result of, of some of those um, some of those deals. He got two point. $379 million in other compensation in 2018. If you look at revenue for the business in 2018, that was $2.6 million. So if you, if you look at management as getting kind of a, a compensation that exceeds revenue for the business, uh, uh, not a great look. If I was going to invest in EV charging, ChargePoint is coming public via a SPAC. Um, has its own issues when it comes to EV charging uh, because you know generally not going to be a super high margin business selling electricity. You know the analog is to gas stations, and you know uh, if you're familiar with how gas stations make money, most of the money made at a gas station is via the convenience store, not via selling the gasoline. And so in this case, there's no convenience store, so that adds some problems. But if I were to invest in EV charging, I think ChargePoint is a more interesting company, larger uh, larger network, uh, uh, that sort of thing. So that's kind of my rundown on why Blink is, you know, despite the really strong performance, not something that would be on my watch list today. Jason, any thoughts on that subsector in general? Yeah, I just just number one on on Blink Charging. You you look at the you look at the the, the record, the revenue record alone. This is, I mean, this is a company that, you know, <laughs> the, the company's never done more than four and a half million dollars in revenue over any four consecutive quarterly period, and revenues over. It, if you go back to like 2015 through la the end of last year, revenues fell, right? Revenues fell. This, is, this isn't a company that has established itself as a leader and then has consistently started generating better and better results and growing revenues every single year. Revenues have grown. I will, I will give the company credit. Revenues have grown in 2020. 
but from an extremely low point, and the market is almost valuing this company at $800 million, it's never done $5 million in sales in a single year. And last year, it gave essentially half of its sales to its CEO and related parties of the CEO. There are so many red flags here. And But here's the other one from an industry perspective to look a little bit larger. This is going to be a really tough place to be a pure play and win. Really tough place. Tesla does its own thing. You have companies like um, um, SolarEdge that are building equipment for the EV recharging market. There are big industrial companies that have lots of experience in this sort of infrastructure that are going to be players in it. It's going to be really hard to win in what is essentially going to boil down to being a commodity product, I think. So, yeah, I, I just I agree with you. It's it's. Yes. So again, I think the big takeaway is on all these, whether they're one of one of those that you want to bottom fish on, or whether it's a company that that's been flying. Look at the financials and poke into kind of what what the management's incentives are and those sorts of things. Um, because, you know, if you just zoom out a little bit, uh, you know, from this near term, how the company has been performing because of you know whatever subsector is getting a lot of hype, uh, it can give you a little bit more clarity on what the long term trajectory is of the business and whether it's something that you would be excited about. You know, being invested in over you know a five or ten year period, which is what we advise folks. Uh, you know, the the time frame we advise folks to think about um, when investing. So you know, we've kind of we've kind of you know beaten down, I guess, a, a few a few of these a few of these 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 companies, Jason. So so to close it out, do you have a company uh, that that is up big this year that you still think is a great buy? And if so, can you tell us what it is and why? Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of TPI Composites ticker TPIC. And it's up. Let's see. I'm not sure exactly how much it's up this year. I haven't looked at it today, uh, but it's it's up well over 100, percent right? And here's here's why I like TPI Composites right now. Uh, first, the stock is up big, but you look at the past five years, revenues up almost 180, percent right? There you go. The, the, it's a growing business. It's actually a meaningfully growing growing business. Now, operating cash flow positive. Operating cash flow. Uh, unlike a lot of these companies that are, in some cases, they're actually spending more on their operations than they're even generating in revenues total, right? I mean, it's just their businesses are so completely upside down. Now, here's here's what I like about the business looking forward. You know, it's 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 a major supplier for wind turbines, the actual blades for, for the wind turbine makers. Basically, it's a supplier to all the largest non-Chinese wind turbine makers in the world. It's a big contract manufacturer. It plays a really important niche role, making making it so that the turbine makers can compete in markets where it might not make sense for them to build a blade factory, just because they're not going to get enough volume of sales in those areas. And geographically, uh, this is a tough business. You have to be these blades are huge, right? They're you know 100 meters long. You can't you can't just build them in in. Denmark and and ship them to Southeast Asia or ship them to Brazil, right? You have to you have to be local because of the shipping logistics uh, implications there. So there's optionality too, because they're really good at composites. Uh, electric vehicle makers that are looking to build strong light vehicles are using. I think Workhorse is an example is a company that uses uh, TPI composites to make frames to make bodies for its vehicles. So they, their manufacturing expertise actually gives them some optionality in other very high growth industries. And here's a really cool thing. Trades for about one-time sales, right? So you start thinking about valuation multiples. This is a stock that's gone up substantially. And one-time sales for a manufacturer, 
which a lot of these companies essentially what they boil down to is their their manufacturers. One-time sales is 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 fairly reasonable, right? Especially for a growth business that's not going to have massive margins, but at scale can kick off a lot of operating cash. It's a very very reasonable price for for I think a great business that ticks off a lot of those other boxes about what a winner really looks like. Awesome. Yeah. So for mine, I'm going a little bit away uh, from the energy space, but if anybody follows me on Twitter, they know Mash Group is one of my favorite stocks on the face of the planet. Um, just kind of rundown for folks who aren't familiar with with the company. Uh, you know, they are a, an online dating provider. Their their namesake platform is Match, but the the main driver of the business, uh, most significant winner for them ha- has been Tinder, which has really kind of changed the game when it when it comes to online dating. Uh, you, online dating really took off uh, when the internet first spiked up, and then really had a second spike uh, on mobile. And Tinder was really really the, the winner app. There, if you look over the the past five years, Match Group direct revenue has compounded at a, at a 23% compound annual growth rate, from 225 million to 628 million dollars. Tinder has performed strongly, but they also have other platforms like Pairs, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, the namesake Match, MeTech, and then the other one that, that's really exciting right now is Hinge, and that's one that that's really been performing well this year. Uh, Match Group acquired Hinge. A couple years ago, um, and at the time, app downloads were actually declining. Since Match um, has uh, took Hinge on board, their downloads are up 83% year-to-date. ARPU, average revenue per user, is an important metric for, for, for lots of businesses, up more than 100% year-over-year in the third quarter. Uh, direct revenue growth for Hinge up 200% year-over-year in the third quarter, so really firing on all cylinders. When you look at Match Group's competition and online dating, they really own pretty much all the platforms of note, uh, with the exception of Bumble. Um, and and when, you, when you think about it, online dating, especially today in 2020, is essentially the only way you can date right now. Um, it, 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 what my favorite chart on the face of the planet, uh, when it comes to um, kind of bullishness on online dating, you can look at at um at kind of the share of couples that meet via online dating has basically been going straight up um for the past 20 years or so and of course that's been pulled forward um by the pandemic and so you look at look at match today um not cheap it's valued at 60 times forward earnings 14 times forward sales but when you look at the positioning uh uh for the business whoa whoa, whoa. did you say earnings so you're talking about a winner that has that's right there's some earnings there there's that you got crazy nick that's crazy. Well, that's true. Yeah. So, so we do have, we do have earnings here, um, and again, that this this is a business where uh, online dating has had strong strong growth over the past again twenty years, only continuing to, to grow moving forward. Big opportunity uh, outside of the U.S. and outside of some of these more developed countries. You look at, at some places in the Middle East. This can be one of the the only times uh, in history that that females in some of these countries have had you know real affirmative control over their, their dating life and those sorts of things. Uh, so, so really, lots of optionality uh, for match. This online dating space is growing, um, and lots of opportunities outside the U.S. So stocks up. 79% uh, since it split out from IAC uh, over this summer, but uh, and it's valued at $37 billion. When you look at, at the positioning of, of the company dominating online dating, this core relationship that people have, you know, getting married, all, all those sorts of things, it's valued at $37 billion today. I don't know what it's worth, but I think it's worth significantly more. When you, when you control dating, something that's so important to, to just how people live their lives, uh, I think that's got to be a $100 billion business. And uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. The company is just firing on all cylinders and hopefully they can maintain their momentum. Yeah. It's, it's you know, I, honestly, I've never, I've never bought this company and I've listened to you, you know, 
pound the drum on it for a year now, and I've never invested. Might be time for me to get a little skin in the game here. Well, I think one thing that's interesting with Match, and this is not an original idea, but it's one of those few companies that is actually a COVID stock and a reopening stock. So when everybody gets locked down, everybody's like, well, I have to I have to go on, on Match or whatever or on Tinder because that's the only way I can, I can find potential dates or matches. And then when everything opens up, hey, guess what? I get to actually go go back to the restaurants and the bars and, and the movies and all those sorts of things. Um, and Match is someone that can drive demand to some of these places. That That's one potential optionality for revenue. We talked about I had... Um, Dan McMurtry from Tyro Partners on, I think it was back at the beginning of, of the year, we talked about Match. One of the things they talked about, this idea that, hey, maybe they can make a deal with, with restaurants where it says, hey, we're going to go on a date here. The restaurant will give you a coupon. They give a kickback to Match. Lots of optionality for them to to bring people into the real world uh, with these matches once people uh, once things return to normal. I, I think this company has got a lot of lot of ability to keep growing, and, and I think it will, clearly, by, by uh, what I'm talking about. Um, Jason, any last thoughts before we uh, go away on buying the dip, buying companies you know, on 52-week highs, and, and how to think about looking for stocks uh, that, that, uh, that are uh, appealing to invest in? I think the only thing I want to do is just close by emphasizing, emphasizing what we were talking about. about you know, it's, it's one thing to buy a good business that the stock is down because of temporary reasons versus bottom feeding the mediocre businesses that are more likely to continue to struggle, or maybe it's just too hard to predict what business is going to look like in the future. And at the same time, emphasizing the difference between a winner and a stock that's just gone up because everybody's very interested in whatever industry that it's in, whatever buzzwords attached to it, while the underlying business itself hasn't really earned anything. Right. Those are two really, really important concepts to have that nuance that I think will help people. I think it's you know, it's going to help people make more money and avoid losses, which is the other side of making more money. Absolutely. At the end of the day, you know, the stock is a reflection of the business over the long term. And so uh, we want to we want to look at see how the business is performing, what its financials are doing and what its prospects are in the future. And uh, that's what we try to help folks out with on this show every week. Jason, we'll be excited to do that uh, again soon. Next time I have you on. Thanks for joining the show as always. Always good to be on with you, Nick. Good times. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 